This is Andrew Faust, Permaculture Perspectives. I'm here with Clay Roop, and we're going to have some fun just talking about the kind of stuff we like to get into. Clay studied permaculture with me in New York City first, and then brought his girlfriend to our course up here in Ellenville. And so he studied two programs with me, and has also worked on a bunch of jobs. And we've had some really great discussions about things like uh, some of my background and personal explorations and things like living off the grid and uh, what is it like to, you know, really begin to dive into the nitty gritty of what is a permaculture lifestyle look like? What is the history of somebody who teaches it, for instance, in New York City for eight years with over 500 graduates, you know, actually talking more about my background is something that I really haven't done on this podcast very much at all, really. The focus has been to educate you all who are listening to it in things that are about permaculture and the principles and how we teach it. And so this is kind of unique because what we're going to do here is talk more informally and say, Let's just explore some of where my thinking comes from, some of the unique history I have with things like the community scene and the commune scene and how permaculture really kind of emerged out of a lot of different subcultures in this country and also some of its connection to things that are not commonly connected to say gardening or landscaping, but are also more part of the cultural evolution of permaculture. The uh, you know the lifestyle. What is what is it? What does it mean to live in a way that is more connected to a process of the planet and how it works? And what does it mean for us to just start to? As human beings, explore different ways of um, you know, making a living, ways of just day-to-day existence, really. You know, there's. Well, Andrew, if you don't mind me yeah. jumping in. Clay. Um, that's the reason why I took your course and, of course, prior to that, got interested in permaculture was specifically for understanding how to take care of myself it's it's kind of lumped into the whole prepper kind of folks which mm-hmm. <clears throat> so i'm recently have patriated back to the united states i've been abroad for going on almost 13 years and um there was this i guess movement of shows that would kind of sh- make fun of preppers and things like that on television um but i always thought that that is those are, those are the people we shouldn't be making fun of. Like that's they they obviously are trying to understand and know how to survive. They know a lot more about probably <clears throat> totally um, the subjects you think you might know about. I mean, real education. You know, learning how to you know if the lights went off, how to take care of yourself, how mm-hmm. to make food from scratch. Mm-hmm. Which even just on that alone is tough. Some people you you know they don't know how to you know make butter or make uh, breads or you make cakes or 
Um, and then, you know, if the grocery stores are closed, uh, growing your own food. I grew up in a very conservative area, like a suburb, and nobody had gardens. I mean, no one, it wasn't even a, it wasn't even a part of our education. Right. So I came into your class and I knew nothing. And there's so much to learn and there's so much information that you, I mean, what, it was a hundred plus hours for the PDC. And, um, so you had so many things that you talked about that were fascinating and it was, it, when I went through the course a second time, again, I don't know, you, how many hundreds of hours is involved in that PDC, would you estimate? Of I mean, in-class work is about 78 hours total right? with somewhere <clears> around <throat> 20 out-of-class hours. Okay, yeah. So, so, yeah. Around that. And yeah. so as many questions you have along that way, I mean, you, you can't dive in that much because you would deviate from... What needs to be like the core principles? So the the right. a couple that I thought were fascinating, well, definitely the most fascinating, is you freaking lived off grid, like totally self sustained. I want to say three years without any electricity, like <clears throat> none, and then four years with something along yeah. those lines. Is yeah. that does that sound about right? Yeah. How did you get to a point? <laughs> Where you lived, for I mean, I who doesn't know, isn't aware of of Thoreau and Walden? I mean, that was a one year journey mm-hmm. off grid. Mm-hmm. You did mm-hmm. that times seven. I mean, that's mm-hmm. incredible. Mm-hmm. And th- you could argue, oh well, the power. But the first three years, you had, I don't think you had any power. Is that right? I did generator. Okay, yeah, generator that I used for construction projects. So I had a neighbor who used a generator. Okay. To, you know, watch television and right. do other recreational things. By my own discretion, my generator I only used to run a circular saw and to do things that were about building the house that we were building. That's so not bad. That's not really cheating. So it was, uh, you know, it's fully off-grid. The right. site there, you know, I, I to back up a little bit on it, I call it my permaculture PhD project because I intentionally <clears throat> purchased that land to learn about how to do things I'd been learning about in the mid-90s. So in 96, I took my permaculture design certification course, meaning mine in the sense that today that's what I'm teaching. Right. And that's the program that we're talking about. But in 96, the first one that I took was at the farm in Tennessee. And those guys who were teaching that class, Peter Bain, Chuck Marsh, who just passed this year, they... uh, we're all about starting eco-villages, and that was the purpose of permaculture, was to start some eco-village somewhere. And I was taking the course as a high school teacher. My school actually paid for half of my program oh, okay. because they saw it as <clears throat> staff enrichment. So I went down there, took this permaculture design course, mm-hmm. went back up, integrated all the stuff I learned into my curriculum in the high school, and started doing things like taking kids in vans to go work on organic farms and biodynamic orchards and restore damaged ecosystems for the local township. Okay. And really creating this whole concept around education at a high school level of getting students out of the classroom and into the local landscape to be a mobilized workforce and right, to so teach you're, them you're, things. 20-something, you're, you're like, all right, you went through this course, 
on the farm in Tennessee, which of course I'm aware of, because uh, my friend I met overseas was born on this farm in somewhere right. middle middle Tennessee. Yeah. Right, Summertown, Tennessee. Yeah, the farm. That's him. They followed Stephen Gaskin and Ida May Gaskin there, and yeah, and uh, this guy Jack Meeker and his father and mom. Uh, his father was a, a doctor. Anyhow, uh, I'd heard about that from a long time ago. So, but going back to you, um, so you found a couple friends. Like, how did you get the motive? Or the, not only the motivation. It's not like you had that, but the momentum was the word I was looking for to get to where you can actually do this. Because so ideas are one thing, but actually grabbing the right people. So, what what'd you do? Mm-hmm. Uh, the context of how I picked. Where yeah, like, did you just call up some buddies? Like, hey, let's go to. Where, West Virginia? Is that right? Yeah, Pocahontas County, West Virginia. Right, so, yeah, how did you... So, what took me down there yeah. originally was kind of, um, you know, um, a, uh, what you would call it, you know, a happenstance in the sense that I had taken... I went down there to take a class at a place okay. that was called, that's called Gesundheit Institute, where Patch Adams, Hollywood made a film about him called Patch. That Robin Williams yeah. plays a doctor kind of who remember. wants to heal through the laughter, power of laughter yeah, yeah, and love yeah, yeah. and humor. Right, right. Okay. So he's a real person, Patch. Okay. And he's a subculture charismatic figure who had a commune on this 325-acre property in West Virginia. And eventually it kind of split up for various reasons and Patch started... Which they always seem to do, which we can talk about later. Traveling around, exactly. And one of the things that brought me to that particular pocket of beauty in the East Coast, because, I mean, without a doubt, Pocahontas County... Never been. I've actually... I don't think I've ever been to West Virginia. It's stunning. And it's the largest roadless area on the eastern seaboard. Largest roadless area. Yeah, so David Foreman... the fewest amount of, like, paved roads? Right. In, like, miles or... Yeah. On the eastern seaboard. It's still considered the eastern seaboard. What would be on the western seaboard? seaboard? Well, obviously Well, you could have larger roadless areas, yeah, if you get into wilderness areas. Like like where I worked for the Mount Baker Snoqualmie one up on Washington State. Right, right. But on the eastern seaboard, seaboard, West Virginia is as wilderness. No, this particular county. This particular county is as wild as Only Pocahontas County. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's dialed in. So that is the most remote county on the eastern seaboard. Yes. Whoa. With the most amount so of dialed areas okay. of any national I thought forest. you just kind of picked it willy-nilly. No. Interesting. And the politics of West Virginia are a lot more So you took the class in that same county or close to the county? Like, did you find out about the county? The, I took the, yeah, I took the class right in Pocahontas County at Gesundheit, mm. which is near Hillsborough, West Virginia. So was this something you had learned prior to going there or was it after you got there you find out this place has got the few, few roads in any county on the eastern seaboard after you're yeah. right so you're like oh this place is special I started researching it right and, I started and it was it noticeably more wilderness than say pennsylvania or, oh yeah that's what like i said never noticeably been. stunning i can't think of beautiful. when i would have but it's considered the cleanest through. watershed also on the <clears> eastern <throat> seaboard so the greenbrier river which is the main river that flows through most of Pocahontas County starts in the Highland and goes And what would be the largest city in Pocahontas County? Uh, in Pocahontas, there's not much. Like, where the hell is this I'd place? I'd say... What is... <laughs> <laughs> 
Pocahontas is, is a stretch. I was going to name one that's in the next county. I kind of can think about the shape of West Virginia. Like, are we, we're, we're about... In Greenbrier, West Virginia, there's a town you know of, which is White Sulphur Springs, which is where the Greenbrier River Hotel is, which Never is... Well, it's a place where the, the higher city? ups the, from Washington D.C. will go if there's ever an attack. Roanoke is Roanoke, West Virginia. Yeah, you've never heard of the Greenbrier River. Hotel. Never. So it costs like five thousand dollars a night to stay what? there, and people like Bush and Cheney and all of never them have like a secret bunker there. Oh, I they love secret give, bunker stories. Though. Yeah, they now give tours of, but then they stop doing the tours because now it's back in action hmm. again. Green the Greenbrier Bri- River okay. Hotel. So it's historically famous for this sort of, uh, you know, esoteric right. reason. All right. And created a... Uh, but you're not, ne- you're not, that's not in Pocahontas County, though. It's in the county south. Now, next to you. It's where Amtrak comes in, which is part of why I picked that as a homestead site to have an education. All right, program. so you're in... Because you can actually rem- get there on a train. Okay. 45 minutes south of there. What was the city... You lived in, or do you not want to disclose your secret? No, it was spot? yeah, Hillsborough, and it was near the largest town in in Pocahontas is probably Marlinton, which Dude. is in the middle of the county. What's the population of this? Of it's the lowest population density county of any county in the country. How many? Pocahontas so how many? To, how many? How many total people lived in Marlinton, no, this big city? You lived very few. <laughs> very few. Just trying to paint a picture. So how? Probably many like two thousand. That's something. the big city. Oh yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Super small. That's sort crazy. Of like you're in and what, and so what? You're you're, you're, this coast. is like what? Nineteen eighty <laughs> something. Like when was this? Well, I I. So I went down there again? and took. So it was called the Summer School for Designing a All Society. Right. And you're and it was 20 by these cyberneticians and right. language theorists and performance okay. artists and it was uh Yeah, I was I was like probably 26, 25 and, or something like and that. And you had graduated at 26, 25 from undergrad? From this this course you were taking oh, yeah, at Pocahontas yeah. County. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Sorry. So, and, so right when you get out of there you already like the, the next day you knew what you were doing or did this take a no, while no, to plan no. out? So like how what, did it So how did it come I got off on a tangent there. I was telling you that the history of how I discovered where to then homestead went back to that class. But then when I actually went there to homestead wasn't until 1999. So I want to hear so from, from the I point t- where you finished your course in Pocahontas County. Yeah. You're like, I'm a freaking, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go like live like Walden. So how, yeah. did, how did you... Who did you do it with? And then, like, how, what did that process? How did that? How did it go? It was like, did you just pick something? Did it take you a month? Did it take you a year? Mm-hmm. Like, tell me, tell me that process. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who probably think about doing stuff like this. Yeah. And they don't know where to start. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I was thinking about land that had a good balance of forest to meadow. Okay. And I wanted a spring that started why, on the property I'm jump drinking real water. Quick. Why meadow? What, what's the... I don't understand why. The, what do you need a meadow for? A balance of forest to meadow? Yeah. You want to raise livestock or build a house where you can get sunlight or grow a vegetable garden, you're going to want a meadow. For grazing animals and things like Anything, that. Anything, really. I mean, for your house, you're going to want to be on the south-facing edge of a meadow. You don't want to have to clear forest in order to have southern exposure. Right. So really important to me was southern exposure, as meadow, a, some forest, yeah, and a spring, a spring that started on had the to have property. a spring, yeah, had to have a spring. 
that was part like of the deal breaker the experiment no with West Virginia is that I wanted to have a site where I set it up on you know a spring fed water system for the whole site because I wanted to have the ability say everything goes down from some hurricane or whatever right. you could go and like drink water coming out All of right. a hole in the ground so let's say <laughs> let's me, say like you that's found the foundation so if you would have found a spot that didn't have a spring but let's say it had some year so let long me tell you flow the story rivers. so here's what it was okay. right the worst drought in recorded history on the east coast was 1999 which is when i went prospecting for this particular homestead land that mm. i knew was going to be an educational center okay so my goal was to have the center for bioregional living which i had already started at Apatinas as a separate department so what I did was oh, at the school, I created my this. own program that I called CBL, the Center for Bioregional Living. I had my own little newsletter. And it was so I could like recruit students who came into that program to study permaculture and ecological design and all the things that I was wanting to have them get interested in right. that weren't necessarily part of the program's focus. You know, they offered English classes and math classes and history, but they weren't focused on ecological aspects of those things. Whereas mm -hmm. I had this separate program because I taught there for 10 years. So this was after so I'd been there for already eight I years. I didn't pick up on this. So during that, what was your entire homestead stretch? Seven, eight years? How many years? Total? Actually living on the site about seven. Okay. So in that seven years, you but actually... But I spent three years building it out over, oh, over so the you were, summer. So you were dicking around with it for 10 years then. Yeah, 10 years total. All right. So... 99, I bought it. I moved out like 07, so eight years. So in that seven-year stretch when you were actually living there, you were doing PDCs or doing educational things on I property? I didn't going, know that. All, yeah, I was. I, yeah, I had interns from UC Santa Cruz who came and volunteered with me because they found me on the internet. I created a website very early on. Now, were you... Were I had you, a laptop sitting out there off the grid hooked up through my phone yeah. line that I had zip-tied to trees through the forest. No for way. Feet. Yep. All right. Totally. That was how we're to st I want to hear more. What? Say that it repeat. How, what? Yeah, I had over a thousand feet of phone lines. All right, you, you want to send a prospecting whatever assistant volunteer uh, an email. Yeah. You punch it out on your computer. Yeah. And My when you send sends like beep beep back then when it had the dial up right is this a dial up modem type thing? No. What year would this been a bit? It was still, you know, they can still do, like a lot of, like I can do Ethernet right now that's through the copper cable in the house. Right, okay, so it you, was you're, that. You're, it on your, you're on a mobile computer, and because you don't have a, you were... What was before wireless was really, <laughs> right. wire, wireless wasn't, nobody was doing wireless. No. Yeah, exactly, in, that's what I'm trying to figure out how the hell you did this. 03, 04. Okay. Yeah, it was through the phone line. Internet through the phone line. Okay, so you did. You had, and what were you? Oh, okay, I thought you were physically slinging phones like the, some kind of zip line system. Yeah, well, I used zip ties to attach the phone line to trees through the forest. <laughs> so because see, the phone company will run like they'll run the the phone line into your property five hundred feet for free, and they'll bring it up to a tree even and mount a box in uh, the middle of nowhere. Really? Oh yeah, they'll do this, but they won't do it beyond five hundred. This is everywhere. Well, I guess where I was in West yeah. Virginia, they would do this. 500 Everybody, feet. They'll give you 500 feet and that's it. But and that's give, it. They're but they'll give gonna. you the line for further. These guys did. They were really cool. Linemen left me 
That's a cool. whole spool. They were like, hey, I see what you're doing. I'll kick you a whole spool of this stuff. We don't pay anything for it. They just <laughs> let me. And I'm like, great, thank you. And so then I ran it above ground, like above right. zip-tied to trees, like over 1,200 feet of distance through the woods <laughs> to where my straw bale house was across the stream valley from right. where they were bringing in the box on an old that logging road from a common drive. Right. See, so a lot of things I learned there, like in the wintertime, I could only hike in or snowshoe into the home site. I couldn't drive in at all. all well, what was the closest point where you had so to, I had get to out? hike half a mile? To half a mile? Yeah. So what, 15 minutes? Depending on how much snow had fallen, what the conditions were. That's only during the winter. Obviously, you could drive up otherwise. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So two or three, four months? About two and a half months that it was literally shut down, that you better have your vehicles up at the top by the state road or you're not getting them out for the rest of the winter. So the way it went was what I learned a lot about there was that you have, you know, so you have a two-lane state highway. Okay. Then you have a single-lane, smaller Comes state off, yeah. road. Those often then turn into maybe a dirt road. And then off of that is a common drive for where my spot was. Now, common drive is, is private. Not, it's lane. your private property. Yeah. Why is it called common, then? Because there's a bunch of properties off of it who all pitch in to maintain uh, Okay. So it's a pool. Which can be a headache. Yeah. For sure. How much maintenance is required? I'd say almost every community I know that has a common drive has arguments over. Okay, this is this is interesting. As a side note, well, when common drives, but what I'm getting at here is that remote sites all have patterns of access that define their remoteness. In other words, clearly, Mm -hmm. if I'm on the main stem, then you're not that that remote. remote. Right, right, right. Right. And as I get out on the single track state road, that's more remote. Very logical. Now I'm off on the dirt road. That's more remote. Now I'm off the dirt road on a common drive, more remote. And now, like, I So common drive would be the most remote. That's that's more remote than dirt road. And then off that is my own half mile access to get out to my actual house. That's true off road. So you're very remote. Yeah. And so when you live in sites like that. How many people would you say would share that common road, if you had to guess? Well, so winter, most people were snowbirds. Very few year-round residents. Mm. Most of them just headed south and, like, slept in a van in Florida or something. My nearest neighbor, who had caused himself an aging ex-hippie biker who had pool night since 1976 in his shed. Every Friday night. I, I lucked out and ended up shed. homesteading next to this scene, like the only scene for like miles. I can't picture a pool in a shed. So picture off-grid party where the only lighting for the pool night is from a car battery because what there's no the grid tie, there's no electric. So power. everyone around you is as crazy as you are? Like, they're all doing this kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, and what no, I learned after I was there is even people who were CIA nuts and were wanting to get away from where surveillance could happen found that area and decided to homestead there because it was so remote and unmonitored by satellite surveillance. Wow. And, and so there had been various waves of kind of intelligentsia people who were weird. honestly a Did lot of Northeastern intellectuals. Did who you know were, these folks? No, but as I lived there, I began to realize that a lot of my neighbors were a similar right, demographic. So let's go, let's they, weren't, they weren't people 
who were like backcountry, like right. multi generation Appalachian hillbillies. All right, I want to go. I want to go back to your homesteaders. Your common road. How many people, or how so many, how many places share that? It was actually originally called the Isle of the Red Hood because it was a hippie commune that was in Virginia, where a red hood of a car was in the stream bed. And they'd named themselves the Isle of the Red Hood. That hippie commune had moved to this spot in West Virginia where I bought land. They had all split up. They'd all slept with each other and gotten angry and <laughs> no longer were friends right. but still live there. They always break up. All these groups break up. We'll they still all live there, too. Oh, right? weird. That's crazy. So these people had like, you know, one time I was with Bill and now I'm with Rob. And but now like, Rob and Bill don't get... Yeah, I wonder why Rob and Bill like don't a, get along. Uh, Maybe... <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a, a good reality show. It totally I'm is. I'm sure bizarre, they haven't done it already. Bizarre. So, Off-grid hippies. So I knew none of this. <laughs> I knew none of this. Like, all I knew, here's what I knew about this property. It's funny. We started out with you asking me, like, well, yeah. it's a spring, the deal breaker, right? And that's somehow where we ended yes. up here. But I, have so, te- I have a feeling that's going to happen a lot. So what's interesting is that the spring is a really good thread because... Hmm. It was the worst drought in recorded history. Yes. And so I knew that if there was a what I often call in courses a damp, muddy spot, right, that mm-hmm. that meant there was a spring there because everything else was bone dry. I mean, uh, rivers were Because you were there were at the dry out. point, right, so it was real easy to... So on this property, uh-huh. there was this damp, awesome, muddy damp, muddy spot down in the holler, as they call it. The holler is in... Appalachian geography where I hear it on country songs all the time it's where a spring starts and then a stream begins so it's the smallest little valley that you can imagine that the Appalachians are full of it's why it gets confusing to orient because every little pocket of the landscape has a little spring emerging that turns into a stream that's a separate little valley that happens in geography to get high rainfall I knew country people sing about it, and I knew it was a direction or a location, but I didn't know what. It's a smaller than a valley. Yeah. Hmm. It's like a sub-watershed, like a really okay. small valley high in the mountains. Right. So this property was at about 3,500 So that feet. answers why you wanted. So river, normally not the worst source of water, but you just wanted 100% insurance. Quality. I want oh, the highest quality. quality water. is always higher in the sh- watershed. Why? Because there's less influx of unknown materials. So above ground streams can be good, but they can't be Way good. more of a crap shot than a spring that's coming from a high point in the landscape. So what if you Any only... Any spring that's lower in the land just has more surface area that you'd have to know something about. Was there a dump there? Was there a septic tank there? Was there, you know, if there's like... Lots of acreage above where a spring Did it matter up. where the spring is on the property in regards to elevation? It could have been in better spots, but what was elevation is all, all, all important. Yeah, over two years' time of being on the property, yeah. I discovered springs that were higher that I was able to gravity feed over, but only after being there for two years. Why would so it the take site two I years to find a damp muddy spot? Was it super wild, wet? Was right? it wet? It was. But I'd been walking by it for like I mean, a year and a half yeah. on the way to my truck, which I would park like out by the common drive, right? So I, I parked and walked in most right. of the time to the property. I only drove in when I needed to bring in like 
building materials, firewood, groceries, something like that. First of but all, typically I walked. You trying to tell me you have to you have firewood or groceries, and you got to walk with snowshoes for like twenty minutes? No, I got home. so that was what I did in the winter. Was I pretty much just stockpiled everything except for so groceries. you didn't have to do that? Yeah, only still groceries. You had still grocery carry I over. Backpacked it in. I mean. I've done camping okay. where I'm hiking. Uh, I'm like 40 picturing pounds, like you know? <laughs> walking with the plastic bags and like I no, I go 20 you think feet about and I'm ready. It. You like, got a plan. Get these out of my hands. <laughs> but I try to carry like 20 in each hand. Yeah. Um, no, in this kind of lifestyle. So going back to the spring thing. So if you have a spring and it's low, or if not on the lowest part, quite low. Yeah. Is, is that so, how do you how do you work around that? So what happened was on this property. I mean, honestly, we were, you know, out, I, w- I would have to say I feel that I was blessed to have a bunch of springs. But mm-hmm. initially, the first spring that I found the one. was the one that I still primarily used for Old drinking. Faithful. Because yep. it was such better quality water because of the, the way that I was able to get it back to rock and down to rock. Okay. The higher up one, I was able to gravity feed through a pipe all the way over to the house and fill about 3,000 gallons of tanks that I buried so that 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 one became what made the whole system sing over What'd you do? So that was But I didn't discover that one until two two years years in. Yeah, what'd you do before that? I was actually having my neighbor who was helping me do construction bring water from his spring for me to make clay plaster. And hand hauling my drinking water from that low what spring. What is hand hauling? Hand hauling. Oh, hand hauling. <laughs> hand I was like, hauling. what's this ham hauling stuff? I don't remember you talking Did about that in our yeah. course. I took that thing twice. What's this ham hauling? Uh, so you had to hand haul from the spring. Now, going back to the spring. I wanted to. I didn't have to. You wanted to. Because you just want to get that crazy, just full experience. It's a, It's good to, I mean... The whole ritual of drawing your drinking water is a good rhythm for people to have. I've gone on to develop springs for people that they want to have the ability to hand haul their drinking water. As like a daily ritual? I don't know a better way to say it, right? It's a funny phrase. Yeah, but it's like, is this like some kind of daily daily. ritual kind of thing? No, see, I would would fill up a five-gallon carboy. So I would dip a stainless steel bowl, fill a five-gallon carboy that I would bungee cord into a wheelbarrow. And then wheelbarrowed up a single track goat path, as friends of mine called it, who came to visit me <laughs> to the house where I had a ceramic five gallon cooler with a stainless steel tap on it. So then I, you know, you have five gallons of water for drinking water, it's gonna last you a couple of days. I was just gonna say how long. And I had last two year. carboys. So what I would do is in a storm, I would backlog. Before, so I was religiously listening to NOAA weather radio broadcasts on a little hand crank solar powered shortwave radio and listening to forecasts. And if I heard them say, there will be a storm coming in, you know, three days with high rain. This is one of those hand, no batteries, hand crank. Yeah, just hand crank and a solar panel. Both of them. Wow. So that way the solar panel thing isn't working, the hand crank thing. I went through two or three of them. They were pretty crappy. I couldn't find a good quality one. But they do why. actually fun. How, how long? Oh, he's broke. How, how, just curious. Like, how, long would it, how long could a radio go after it you like they were made it as like a trinket for fun, and nobody really expected homesteaders to be using oh, this I see thing. What you're saying. <laughs> I mean, it was more like, oh, real goods made these because 
wouldn't it be cute for people to have one on the holidays that they could use? There's got to be brand, some right? like military grade one. There's got to be. On, that like, one's probably like guide, my favorite store you know? so ever. I, it was probably a market thing. Seasonal campers. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. But I've, I see stuff like that on Amazon. I'm always curious how these solar radios or solar chargers and stuff like that work. They're decent. I think it's it's always worth You don't exploring. have a charger, though, do you? One of those. They look like, you know, a standard uh, smartphone, but they're just a solar yeah. grid. Yeah. You ever use one of those? Oh, yeah. Those they work? great. Totally. That kind of stuff one. is great. Uh, so we had your water low on a spring. Now, this is the part. And then later discovered. I just like later underscoring that. But I want to go because, back. you know, people, I have a lot of experience in this stuff. And even on my You're own the water property, man. two years water into it, I had this aha. I'd been walking past this spot, looking at it. And then suddenly I realized I'd even dug it up and developed it. So I'd, I'd even gotten it. So this is what I, I want to specifically ask. So you have your piece of property. You know there's a deep, or not not deep, rather, a, a damp, muddy spot. Yeah. Then what? How do you get Dig it that? up. Dig a hole there. The shovel? Yeah. So you so just all shovel my it springs, out. Yeah, all my springs there I did with and hand tools. And at what point do you, what are you looking for? You're looking for where the flow seems like it's really actually coming out. And so you're trying to go... As far back, let's say you're on a slope, right? Right, and you start digging. You want to go uphill I'm, as much as you can with your hole. Okay. So you're actually trying to sort of dig like a cave into the ground. I was picturing that you had like some kind of depression and like digging into. A, so you're you're kind of more springs are going to be more above your feet. You want to try thing. to get the you want to catch the spring at the highest point where it comes out of the ground. Okay, so you're looking for the highest elevated damp muddy spot in exactly. your muddy spot. Yeah. All right, then you get your shovel and Dig you start whacking there. at it, and then and that's kind of up to you how ambitious. But are you, you going to get to a part like uh, to a point rather where it actually has some kind of constricted circular like you know clay pipe kind of entry, or is it is it no. all because it's all you you're seeing the seepage of it. Yes. And at some point, you would think it'd be more constricted into like a coming out of a single source. It doesn't. Like I'm matter. trying to understand what it. When you keep going and you see, okay, this is the highest point, but is it like coming out in drips? Is it flowing? Like, what is it? What do you? What does it look like coming out once you get to that point? Or what kind of flow are you trying to get to with the shovel? If that you're, makes sense. You're just you're basically just digging the hole and then coming back and seeing how it fills because seeps are very low flow, so you're not going to get much action right when you're doing the digging. So, so you're just trying to create spots, a little a reservoir. You, that's, a little it. Reservoir. Okay. that's it. Okay. So I'm thinking, like, you go in there trying to like s- s- put a spigot on this thing. Well, so then, <laughs> that's well, what yeah, I was, yeah. Here's no, how you I, get honestly, to the spigot because obviously, yeah, this is what you do in the oil and gas spigot, world, right? which I worked in. You, you find a, a hole spigot. and you, so, okay. So here's what. Right. So then you make the reservoir bigger if it fills up. Okay. Right. So you dig a small one, fill up. Right. If it does, make it bigger, and then let's say it's like three feet in diameter you've hand dug a pond okay. a little pond it right. fills up now the low side where the dam is you stick a pipe through that dam put a screen on it put a valve on it and run that pipe to whatever you want to and now you've got it 
on tap. Oh, can you repeat that one more time? This, this is important. So, so you have you, you dig you dig a little pond. You make a little pond about right three, where the spring about, is. about a three footer. Now yeah. is is the uh, around like would the uh, be like three feet in diameter? Saying maybe trying to like keep that kind of in the center, deep. kind of going around it. And the, the dam, yeah. the pipe would come about a third of the way up from the bottom of the dam, right. and about two thirds of the way down from the top. So kind of close to the bottom of the pond, so you get head pressure. Because a column of water on top of water ah, creates pressure. I got it. So it's like a water tank. Yeah. Essentially. Exactly. A cool. spring-fed water tank. Yeah. Cool. And Who is that talking and, over and there? And it's only going <laughs> to... Who's that mysterious voice? We'll tell you later, gang. <laughs> and, yeah, so... It's basically he uh, just... He said... Uh, well, can you repeat this question? I wasn't. Really you just you. Down. It's you're creating a water reservoir, water reservoir spring yeah. fed, and it's never going to flow more out of it than is being recharged. In other words, like it's not like a pump. You'll only ever have water coming out of your pipe. No, that makes I can actually picture that as long as the spring idiot. is filling up the reservoir. No, I got it. Right, right. That's fa- yeah. Cause so that's what I did, and I did it about 1,200 feet away from where I was using it. Right. Which is wild to understand. And I had never done anything like this. This was why I call it my permaculture PhD project because, see, why I went and homesteaded there and created all these systems is because I was taking all those high school kids to all those sites, but nobody had a site that had all this stuff. Everybody's site had a passive solar house, a cool orchard. Right. They were doing nice things with native trees and some nuts. But nobody had off-grid energy. Nobody had off-grid water that didn't require a 220 well pump. Nobody was thinking about, like, integrating edibles with wild ecologies, with hand tools. Yeah, I mean, One of the pieces of the experiment that we focused on was all hand tool people-powered farming that then I was selling to high-end restaurants. So part of the purpose of that site was that White Sulphur Springs, where the Greenbrier River Hotel was, created an economic bubble. So there's also an osteopathic medicine college there. So there's all these kind of progressive people who I could sell arugula to for $12 a pound, even though I was living in the largest roadless area on the East Coast, within a 45-minute drive for where I was. Right. And I could raise it all with hand tools and people power and interns from UC Santa Cruz coming out to learn about my permaculture educational off-grid And so that homestead. hotel created this little little boom in the economy, and, and people are looking for a little bit nicer, more unique food products. products there was anything. grass-fed burgers at restaurants that were opened by children of neighbors of mine. My the person, the woman who I bought my land from, is a midwife up there, full time. And so this, and she had, she was the ex-wife of the guy who was my still neighbor, who was the hippie biker who had pool nights since 1976 in his shed. <laughs> That's crazy. He kept having his land carved off. When you by say ex-wives. a shed, how big is so the like shed? Four though? ex-wives later, he's down to something like 60 acres. He started out with something. <laughs> no, like, he didn't. Yeah, yeah. He started out with something like 400 acres. Like are we talking like a shed but the size of this house or the shed? Yeah. About half the size of that. Okay, good size. Good size shed. I think of a shed, I think of like a six foot by six foot. What's a shed just in the, yeah, no, this is a real sizable, like car garage, mechanics garage. Right, right, right. 
And it was wild because sometimes when we'd be out there all playing pool at night, the battery would die in the car, and so the place would just go pitch black. And then you've got like 20 people in the country standing around in the dark. Oh, and so, pool, like, as in billiards? I yeah, was billiards. thinking swimming pool the no, whole no, time. No, no, he had an Olympics. What were you thinking? Olympics. Oh, billiards. Dang it. Yeah. I thought you were talking about swimming pool. No, he had like a full, like what do you call it, Olympic size? Like the full size pool table. A snooker table? Well, snooker tables are larger, I believe. Uh, so were they like the best Fridays ever or was this kind of all you had? It was great. It was great. Because it was all you had. <laughs> I guess you can get away with a lot less. The fact that it was there, you That's were like, true. wow, this is amazing. That's probably true. I can true. stumble so, home on the goat path by right. my spring up to my house from the only party that there is for miles around. So this crazy this crazy old guy. The whole guy, scene was great. How many people shared that common road? Like, how many people would you consider in your neighborhood? So there, yeah, there is like... For a long time, there was nobody at the top of the hill, which is where we would all park our vehicles in the wintertime to be able to get in and out. Okay. Like I was talking about how you had limited access in the yep. winter. Eventually, a trailer went in up there, but she wasn't there in the winter, and she said, it's cool if you can all park up here. So when you say park above, so uh, when you walked, Right where the common drive came off of the state road. So when you were walking from car to your house of groceries, you are walking down, down hill. that hill. Got it, got it, got it. That's part of why you had to get out before winter hit, because there was just this steep slope to that hill that was a certain point where enough snow would build up that you weren't getting out. Okay. Unless you had serious four-wheel drive vehicle and... So, there was her one property there, and then Bill, and then another, like, four properties down there. Everybody had pretty big acreage. We had 17 and a half. So, six, six chunks of land. How many people, like, all together that would you... And, and two-part question. Were those just your people, and you didn't really venture outside of this six-parceled group, or did... No, I didn't even really hang out that much with my immediate neighbors except for the one who was a really good carpenter and was helping me build my place, and then Bill, who was my immediate neighbor. The crazy pool I met guy. people who were gardener, grower, friends of mine who were also... I had a stand at the farmer's market, so I was doing that and making sourdough bread and kombucha and also selling How vegetables. How you kombucha back then? Yeah. I didn't even hear about it until last year or two. Yeah. Bread was one too that was really became something that was so fun most to of make. the. I'm just kind of wanting to paint the picture like so that your neighborhood people were all doing something not normal from you know doing oh, something totally. off grid and, totally. and because of the remoteness which I didn't I didn't realize like that area you picked was strategic and that is that yeah. was the most remote spot and that's. I didn't know that. I yeah. think that's that's insane. Dave Foreman, who started Earth First, says it's the only place he'd ever consider living on the East Coast because it's so Why wild the hell did you leave? You know, in some ways because of that very thing. It was which too is remote? That, well, it became, especially in the wintertime, especially in the winter, it became a... So winter sucked? Yeah. It gets really? Old. I thought winter would be awesome. It's fun for the first two or three. But then get into year like five to eight. To First ten. two, three years. Okay. Yeah, right. Yeah, because it's, yeah, like, it's cool. It's but like then it's like so this cool. thing of having nobody around at all to hang out with and just chill with like gets a little. We'll get to that. So you're in your ha- in your property. And then, and then you had really how many people? From a, from a professional career perspective, teaching in a place that's super remote is a big challenge. People just weren't willing to come that far out. 
So I was that would make sense. I was traveling all the way to Vermont because see, Yestermorrow found me there because of Gesundheit. Because Yestermorrow, where I still teach in Vermont, which was started thirty some years ago by Yale and MIT guys, some of their architects, one of them, Dave Sellers, who's a well-known architect up there. He created a place called Prickly Mountain that has a lot of really interesting experimental whimsical kind of design and uh, he Dave designed Patch's Hospital so Patch's okay. vision is to have a free hospital and Dave designed it people who were working with Yestermorrow because Dave is on their board came down to Gesundheit in West Virginia saw my place loved the straw bale building work I was doing and said can you come to Yestermorrow and teach a permaculture design certification course and I contacted my teacher Peter Bain and said you know what do you think could I teach a permaculture design and course and, you, what, and you're aged how old are you at this point uh, about like the early 30s okay and this is at this point you'd, you've been there at the seven year mark obviously if you're looking to no then I was I was only I was it was 2004 Oh, so I was midway. You were in midway. The okay, my so house. you started doing PDCs and then yeah, just for that that just time for yesterday, all the way up in Vermont. So the reason I'm going back to that story is to explain the context of why I left there. Got it. Okay. Because what I started to realize was my whole student base was like happening in Vermont. And I was doing this commute to go find people who wanted yeah, to study permaculture. Yeah, because you're in a remote place, most I was, remote place and, in the east, and, and, and those people. Was, which is funny, too, when you think about that, because yeah. a lot of people think of Vermont as very remote, right? And I yet, do. I've actually <laughs> still never yeah, been. That's where, my, that's where right. I was like migrating to. Yeah, not a good place to spread courses. the word yeah. and try to recruit people. I get uh, it makes sense. So I so, started yeah. realizing, wow, a lot of things that had served me about the experience there, which were the personal immersion education of that kind of site development, those kinds of environments, and how to really know that I could do things in a way that would work. I mean, the water system there. The right, way that I'm, I'm gonna jump in real quick. I want you because I'm a visual guy. Let's say this in year one. Walk one. What's the size of the parcel? Seventeen point six acres. Seventeen six. And you know what? What structures did you have? What kind Nothing of product on the property? Well, let me. Th I'll throw them out and I'll just let you kind of walk us through it. So, just kind of go through and just walk us through like what did you have on property? Let's yeah. say in that first year. Yeah. What were the projects you were engaged in? What I kind of wanted to just what is a tip? What was a typical day like from waking up to going to bed without friggin' power? That's I just want to know what you did all day. Well, what I did all day, whenever I was on site was either build the house or well, let's just start from you're, you, you're waking up at like four in the morning with the sunshine or you got you, there's no alarm clocks right yeah you don't need no <laughs> you're like, camping we can't yeah you're, camping. you're just camping so you're up yeah you're up with the sun it's just camping it's not that it's not that like remote when you think about how would you do it and here's what else i did that's important right. to understand the first two years i was just camping there in the spring, summer, really just in the summer, 
And then I was going back up and teaching full-time at Upatina's and making money to then go back the next summer. Mm -hmm. And then I went back to Upatina's. And then the next third year, I jumped off and got a full-time gig at Gesundheit as a permaculture designer Mm. for them. And we moved in there. And uh, then I lived there for another year through the winter. So still hadn't gotten my place to where I could live there in the winter yet. And was every winter for three years finding somewhere else to live. Right. Okay. Because I was building right. a house you had out to... of pocket incrementally. So we did stuff Man. like develop the spring and put in the posts and the foundation. So then, that was project one? Yeah, that was summer, first summer. First summer. Then the, the second summer we really did a lot of work. The okay. second summer we framed it, stacked bales, and sided it. And roofed it. The third summer. How did you get the design? We co-designed it. Okay. My partner at the time and I. Based partying. off something existing that you knew worked, or no was this books. Like totally experimental books. Books. Okay. And I'd grown up in a passive solar house that's envelope designed. It's a really nice example of good design okay. that was very intuitive to me. Mm-hmm. And then my partner at the time had really good math skills, and I had friends and family who are good carpenters. And so a lot of what I did was just drew things up on paper, ran it by them. And they said stuff like, well, yeah, I don't know anything about the straw bale part, but all the rest of this makes total sense. I, re- I recall it being quite a big building. It was ambitious. Right? Yeah, it was ambitious. What was the dimensions of it again? I, it's total, I'd say about 1,600 square feet if you looked at the greenhouse that I later put on after... The and, first and seven high years roof of building with a envelope. pretty steep elevation. Yeah, because right. it was a pole barn construction. Right. So it was all. It was good. It was good. Three stories on. The yeah, I was going to say it was at least two stories. It seemed like. Yeah, the downhill side was a good three stories. Yeah, I wanted that. So you built that out of straw, straw bale, and it's a pole barn, non-load bearing straw bale. That was okay. Non-load bearing is the important gotcha. descriptor because it's really a wooden house. And the straw is just sitting where insulation would typically sit in any wooden structure. Okay. You just happen to have a fatter wall pocket because of the width of the bale. I don't think I've, I've I don't know if you got into that a lot or during the PDC, but I don't I can't say I've even uh, recall seeing that kind of. Um, it's unique. Yeah. It's a unique I, system, I, I but it's also one. not unique if you start talking shop with anybody who does natural building in the Northeast. So if you were, if you had a, another 17-acre parcel and you were to do a, a, a new building, would you choose the same design or would you do something drastically different? Yeah, I would do something drastically different. What would you do? Uh, I would stick more. Ship. Yeah, I would be more bermed into a hill. I would do a stone foundation. Well, we talked about this. I'm not not into being stuck up. That place started to feel like a ship at night when we would get 40-mile-an-hour gusts for like two and three days straight, which was one of the things I did not anticipate about the site. So it was loud. Loud with the metal roof before I got it insulated. Definitely loud. Yeah. But also pole barns are designed are designed to flex. Oh, so your house moves? So the house would move a little bit. You can feel like... Yeah, that would be... Um, <laughs> well, well we, we talked about this. Uh, so the, the, I was like, I don't know if the I'm airships, like, this is the smartest house. Yeah. It's kind of cool, but right. that site literally I would get 40-mile-an-hour gusts yeah. sometimes for there? three to four... Yeah. Cool. 
three to four days. A house that moves has got to be crazy, but no. So what I did, one of the things I did was I started to aggressively plant out the western border with all kinds of evergreens and water. Oh, right. I wanted that. Break up that. I should have done it when I first (laughs) moved there. That's a good There were a lot of interesting things that, in hindsight, I realized a good plan, a good design would have gone a long way for me there. So, well, I call it my permaculture PhD project. I have to admittedly say that the design element of it, which is ironic because I make a lot of fun about the fact that you can't call it permaculture if it doesn't have a design. So uh, I I had I say that because I saw the failings of my own experiment due to not having done a proper design. I did decent site analysis. Right. I did decent concept. I had personal goals of things I knew I wanted to learn about: natural building, on-site materials, gravity-fed. I wanted to drink directly from a spring and learn how to do all of the things around that. Yeah. But I wasn't necessarily paying attention to like the real skill set that I've developed over the more more recent eight, ten years of my life, which has been the ability to really design properties and think about the whole site and how to have a good layout from the beginning. It's so interesting to me. I retroactively designed that site after I had several ah ahas about it. And the, the design component of just the living quarters alone, honestly, I think I could ask you questions for hours. That I for, designed for a hours. lot. Yeah, so the detailed design, I did do a lot of design of. But I didn't do as good a job at the outset with that project of a whole site master plan. Well, you, I just kind of shot at it in the dark in the sense of once I picked the house site, yeah. I was just hunkering down trying to get that house to where I could live in it. Sure. And I wasn't doing a good job of like pulling up and looking at the whole property again. I even, in hindsight, don't know that I would have built the house where I did there. I had advice that said, hey, you should build it over there. And there were a lot of things about that site that that made sense. But one of the ones that didn't was the wind in the wintertime. So what higher or lower of the elevation? So what it was, it's hard to describe it without a drawing or something, but the, the access point for the property had a decent building site closer to it. This building site where I ended up building it, long story short, is basically a lot further from the access. Mm-hmm. Right? That alone is a pitched battle. Why are you doing that? But you picked it because it looks more badass. It's beautiful. More beautiful. It's gorgeous. That's what everyone would the do. The view's awesome. Of course. You always pick the beautiful but, um, one first. You know, my brother, <laughs> who I respected and looked up to a lot, my brother had lived off the grid for 13 years in Dude, Ithaca. 95% of people would pick the property that looks better and was more And he was like, oh, you should build over there. But Don't you worry would not about do access. That. And then I realized, honestly. A 15-minute walk from the snow. No. And plus, the other site was more protected from the wind, which yeah. is a big deal. But the windbreak over time, I think, mitigated it significantly. It's a stove. Oh, that damn stove. Well, while you're checking on the stove, I don't know how long we've been talking, but I I could seriously ask you questions on just the house component alone for hours, honestly. You want to pause it for a second? Oh, I was just kind of just saying that we should we should. uh, I think we should do this again, like and, and maybe you know this is obviously our first time talking on the subject, but I think there's so many, you know, when you, when you're delivering a hundred plus hours of information that you have to get to the student in order to get, 
that person become a certified permaculture designer. Sure. I'm not getting you can't like the well thing. Honestly, I was actually thinking that back in my mind, if I was listening, like, how the hell does this guy not know? He's taken his courses twice, and he doesn't know what to do with the well. Because if you mean you dig a, in the spring, or the, sorry, oh, the yeah. spring, sorry. No, sure. Um, and it's because you well, know we didn't took, go out and dig one together. Yeah, yet, and you can't spend twenty, thirty minutes on every question that every student asks because you wouldn't be able to get through the course. Right. So there's so much information, and it's really just a starting point. But like I said, that part I think you talked about this off-grid living for a total of 10 minutes and, and the entire hours of information. I don't even emphasize it. I know. These and days. I think that it's funny. I kind of actually have developed this teaching style around the fact that I left that life that for a long time I downplayed it and didn't even see really that. Use that it as much how long have we been chatting? 55, 56 minutes. Yeah. So almost an hour. So I, I think, I mean, this there's a is, lot to tell about it. Now I'm yeah. ready to talk about it more. I know. Is part of so it. So here's what I think we should do. It. I think we should, because we were all over the place, which I think is great, because we were just, obviously, this was not rehearsed <laughs> by any stretch. But I think the um, having maybe like a little series on this kind of off-grid living, like I have so many questions so like I think well, well dive into one. So yeah, no. Well, like I well, I've, I've obviously I've been asking quite a few, but uh, there's the point is there's so many of them, and I think we should uh, do this again and like kind of talk about let's say one part of the series maybe talking about uh, the home home in and of itself. Mm-hmm. You know how to get mm-hmm. the you know the water could be it. You can talk for hours yeah, so about let that. Me, let me talk about the sure. water one. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to say about it that was really. I think I've underutilized the importance of this particular insight that I had there with the setup of it. It's it's really a really unique system that I put in where the spring that I mentioned that I found only after two years of being there that I gravity fed with a pipe through the dam. Mm -hmm. That spring filled 3,000 gallons of tanks that were buried below frost line. The How many, see, coming, what, three one-gallons? <clears throat> three one-thousand? No, I had about a 2,000-gallon tank and a 1,000-gallon tank. And so that, about 3,000 gallons. How much total. water would that do you for? So that was enough water for domestic use for the two and a half months that you Whoa. had no access. Because I was still hand-hauling drinking water. Oh, okay. So it wasn't drinking that, okay, water. Okay, you're still doing the... Got it, got it. It was just... Washing dishes, mm-hmm. taking a showers, shower, and I had hot water coming from a copper coil that was going around the stovepipe for the showers. How often did you actually take a shower? Was it every day, or would you skip skip some shower days? Oh yeah, sure, like every couple days, but usually yeah, I mean, every night we would take a short one because of the fact that the tank would end up with a lot of heat at the end of the day that you wanted to use because it would dissipate into the house over the night. Huh. It was like a battery because we had a 40-gallon metal tank that was on a pedestal right behind the wood stove. So the wood stove had a copper coil going around the stovepipe that had cold water coming in through the floor from an insulated column that came underground from those 3,000-gallon tanks that were up on a hill that were higher. So using gravity-fed pressure for the whole house to come up from underneath, right? From a buried line, from a buried tank. Well, what do you think the feet differential was? What, the drop in, yeah, drop in elevation? I'd say it was about 
30 feet, so probably about 15 PSI or so okay. in the house. Right. Yeah. Pretty good, was, pretty good, pretty good, like, little, little rise, like, right. right there, off to the, off to the, um, <clears throat> off to the east of the house. It rose up. And then the spring fed it from a 1,500-foot line through the forest when it was spring, summer, fall, and they were just overflowing all the time mm-hmm. to where I dug a pond up there, too, because the tanks would be full, the line was running, so I dug a pond. So I had another thing in the summer also, and I had a bunch of other tanks in the summer that I filled up. But for winter, it was those 3,000-gallon tanks. Gravity feed through the floor, go through the copper coil, and... The 40-gallon tank sitting on the pedestal behind the wood stove would be cranking hot at the end of the day because you'd been running a fire all day long. Right. So we'd always take showers at like 10 or 11 at night often. And otherwise, it would overheat the house? No, it just felt like it was... It was still very useful because it was still... That heat, if we didn't take a shower, was released into the living space. Right. It's a battery. Sure. Because I would damp down the fire. So when you said 3,000 gallons... Uh, outside. Outside. Uh, why not 4,000? Was it because... Oh, sure, you could have. So you, is there any... It just was there a certain I started with the smaller one and thought that would be enough, and it wasn't, and upgraded to the 2,000. Gotcha. So I started with the small one. And then you just... Then I realized that was not enough water for one winter. You I could have done some math on that, but I didn't. But essentially, when you were trying to figure all this out, what was your... I guess you had been educated, obviously you had been educated, but were there any yeah. specific resources to try to figure out, like, how, how much water am I going to need? Like how There would- definitely are. I could have done, you know, like, in building the house, I did a lot of research, and I read a lot of books. But around the water system stuff, I did not have good luck finding much. I had to really, I finally, I, when I found the drawing for doing that copper coil. Yeah, I was going to ask you specifically, where did you get that? That was the one that I was like, oh, that's how I should have done it. Because I had done a trial run the winter before with this weird idea. Oh, so like, this was the second? It was the second take. Ah, yeah. I didn't, so the first one, why, <laughs> what was the first one and why did it fail? Because it didn't make any sense for getting the transfer of the heat to go into the pipes. We had basically tried to just get them to be around the sides of the stove, sort of hugging the body of the stove, but there wasn't enough heat there or enough ability to transfer the heat. Right. And then when I saw the drawing of coiling it around a single wall run of stovepipe, that I know is super hot. That makes, yeah, that makes sense. Totally makes sense. And they just make types of So the first one you just had it wrapped around like the... The sort of the the sides of the stove. Yeah, right. I mean, in hindsight, it was foolish, but well, I didn't how, have any... How are you supposed to know? You have to... That's what was... A lot of the point of this whole experience was to learn things that I couldn't learn through any other way than doing them. And so... You know, that's that's part of the key to... I call it self-induced deprivation. You know, I purposefully deprived myself of a lot of creature comforts just to discover, Dude, like, what do you really need and what don't you really need? The only person I've ever met in my entire life who's... I've heard, like I said, you read about the people that do it, but you did it for seven. That's crazy, man. Seven years. That's you can't. I can't imagine how much you would Lots learn. Lots of people or, up there have been doing it for a lot longer than that. Living off. Do people grid do there. that? Are there anything like? Is there anything like that? Are there anything uh, in this area in Hudson Valley that people kind of? Yeah, sure. You'd find find some eclectic people who are living off grid who are in the woods somewhere. Any good examples of ones that you can actually visit? Not that I know of. 
That's the other thing too. It's I'm sure that was some part of what I was trying to do with that site was have it be a site a that learning was about center, visiting. Because right. yeah, most of them are kind of introverted people who are doing it for their own so private. There's got to be reasons or not really. What would be the closest? I mean, do you, is there any place that you know of that does something a full off grid community that they invite to the public to check out and see like look what we're doing this is what everyone should be doing or does everyone want to just hide their stuff and live out in the woods they probably don't like people that's why they're I get it no it's (laughs) it's something that like that that, this is the component of permaculture that not everyone chooses this this route they all have their own reasons but that the concept of being able to be self-sufficient working with the land and I'd just be great to see more examples of it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, or, or people that not only uh, have it implemented, but will like to teach and you know, instruct, and because it's yeah, I think once people understand that they can do all the things that you learned in that crazy, you should start a courses on this kind of stuff. I've mentioned that to you. Yeah, I yeah. think people we, would like we them. do we do hands on some courses. stuff. Yeah, yeah, and we could do more of it uh, without a doubt. Yeah, um, and part of why we want to expand that is for people to get more of those skills. Yeah, I'm I'm sure there's some other home like even homesteading in and of itself, other places that teach homesteading. I mean, just how to like Nothing I know of. There's like magazines and, you know, talk groups and things like that on that topic for sure. Right. For sure. Well, what percentage of your permaculture students are into this? If you had to guess, uh, to live off grid, I think what percentage are into the idea? Probably a lot more than the percentage that are actually going to do it. You know, right? And like I said, I mean, honestly, as a teacher, I don't necessarily consider it to be this like super important thing that everyone should do. It's something that achieved certain ends for me. I think that all of us, yeah. I do think there are things that we should do in order to really know permaculture, which is to experientially oh. engage with it. Right. But whether that's off-grid or not is not the context that is important. I often make the point of saying with this property, really, in West Virginia that we're talking about, that site, I didn't pick it because it was off-grid. I picked it because of the spring. If I had found a property that had had a good spring on it that had grid tie, I would have probably bought that property. Ah. So I wasn't necessarily trying to show how to do it off-grid. It just so happened. What I was mainly trying to show was how to do water systems that were all spring-fed. And then, you know, I wouldn't have necessarily said, oh, I don't want this because it has grid access. If one of those... I would have assumed you would have. No. That was not necessarily a focus. That's interesting. So it was all about just focusing on the water. The spring was the big thing. When did you get so water specific? And then the balance of forest to meadow. At what point was that that become a focus, the water component? When did you start honing in on that? You know, water is something that really, it's, you know, because of just liking to swim growing up in Chester County, Pennsylvania. And as I got more aware of how much pollution there was in water I just began to research it more and so I would get things like I often joke about how I would have a water quality assessment report to pick a dip spot 
<laughs> you know, I would have it out and be like, oh, yeah, that branch, actually, they rank as high-quality trout fishing stream. That's a cool spot to go for a dip. Oh, so they call it HQTFS, high-quality trout fishing stream. And at what age were you, were you aware of this stuff? <laughs> that I was starting to think about in my teens when I was, like, you know, like 15, 16, 17, right. 18, that age, on up into my 20s. Dude, most people don't think about So water. late teens into early 20s, I started Crazy. really thinking about where I was going for a swim because I started to learn that a lot of stuff was polluted in southeastern PA, so I was needing to kind of do a little an- analytics right. of <clears throat> water quality that got me literate in this stuff, where I started to understand how to read water quality assessment reports that really, to most people, are just like a bunch of charts with numbers and names of streams and they're like what am I even looking at and that's why I've done a lot of work around when I was in West Virginia I actually was paid to create a volunteer water quality monitoring program through the EPA through a watershed organization they're called the Greenbrier River Watershed Group and so I discovered them because I after about four years of being there decided I need to find anybody who's advocating for this particular watershed and start to work with them. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that there was this nonprofit that was vastly underutilized with a director who was excited to have new blood come into the scene. Right. So I brought in a friend of mine, David Harper, who I'm right now actually cooking up a project with. He's a professional grant writer for land trusts. He was recently an executive director of a land trust in South Carolina. And... At that time, he was working with Natural Lands Trust, which is a big one in Pennsylvania. He came down to West Virginia, collaborated on applying for this grant that funded the two of us to create educational programs and this water quality monitoring program for the river. And that was a whole project. So you and this other guy, Dave, what was his name? Yeah, David Harper. And so you qualified for a grant, and they just basically gave you money to just to kind of analyze and research the watershed. Yeah. And set up a. How did you know to do that? Because that was stuff that I had learned through all of this all the, this field experience. I've I've always really loved what you'd call field science, but I don't like lab science. And I've never uh, you can't really get a career in science that's all just field work. Right. Which is fine. I would have not enjoyed being a specialist like that anyway. But the point is typically you need to be willing to spend time in a lab also if you want to get a salary job working for someone like the DEP or the DEC doing water quality monitoring. Or and who did you actually submit the grant to? The EPA. To the EPA. And, and you the EPA and you awarded it because it was through the Greenbrier River Watershed, which is a nonprofit. So what we were doing is a, a classic approach that you can do where you find an existing nonprofit who shares values or mission work that you already know you want to do mm-hmm. and you just say hey how about if i apply for a grant with your 501c3 status to pay myself to do this project that i'm sure you all would love to see happen here and they were like yep sign deal let's do that and so we so, were basically the greenbrier river watershed association for a number of years we just ran it. We wrote grants. We did tons of projects through it. It was great, and the director was super cool. So was this uh, 
uh, an area Les, where you were getting, you were, were you getting compensated for this? Like, was this? Yeah. A, okay, so this and was, we paid ourselves this through the grant. And was that your? Were you able to live in this off-grid environment just through doing? No, I was. I was also going up to Vermont. Oh, going up to Vermont. PDCs. After that, what second? Yep. What what year did you start? Two thousand four. Two thousand. Then, then that was what year after you were living off the grid. How many years into it? Into it. Were you like I three? bought it in ninety nine. Okay. So that was the first year. First. So we have ninety nine, oh one, oh. And you had so you had done that every year so. pretty much since you you were there and that on the for those seven years, and then you would do. Like a grant, would that last you for... I'm just trying to... The grants and writing for them, we yeah. didn't, I didn't start... Just, I didn't discover that till about four years into being there. So not till 2004. So how would you... What did you do for the first four years? Besides... Well, like I said, so for two years, I went back and forth from Mupatinas. Yep. Then for so that one, okay, tell me more about that one. I, I didn't... I don't think I've asked you about that one yet. What exactly did that entail? What do you the Antina say? It, we'll say it again. Up at Tina's, that's yeah. where I taught for ten years. That's the free school that. I oh taught yes, at. okay, yeah. You talked yeah. about that in the PDC. Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. So I taught there for ten years. I, it's a social experiment school, really, where it was run by consensus. Students got no grades; they just wrote self evaluations and got credit, mm-hmm. and they had to attend class. So there's an attendance requirement. You write a self evaluation, you get credit no grades hmm. schools run by consensus which okay. means like the students are all in meetings and can fire teachers can create curriculum is that any anything close to like a montessori or a waldorf no, no. they do it's grades not. no yeah they do they do grades okay yeah they don't necessarily all do testing or use the grades necessarily in you know a real pedantic manner but Right. So that that's an experimental form of education that both I graduated from that school in 86. Back then the meetings were run by Robert's Rules of Order. But these are meetings of like 60 people in one room where it's like 50 students and like 10 teachers and you're talking about like anything that might happen on campus. Solving issues. Somebody's lunch gets stolen. We'd have a meeting about it. Right. I mean, like wild stuff yeah. for people, especially difficult for parents to wrap their heads around. Like, well, what'd you do today? Well, we had a meeting. What was it about? And Jimmy's lunch got stolen. Really? You had it? <laughs> and like the meeting would sometimes go on for like a couple days if we couldn't really resolve oh as a goodness. community what to do about something that happened. But in hindsight, honestly, that was pretty radical that they were taking that risk as adults to run a program where. That was what they decided to have school be about. Are they still around? And I'm like, I I give a lot of my skills as a public speaker, as an orator, as somebody who can manage a room and a big group of people very easily to the fact that I went to a program like that. Right. Every kid who went to that school learned how to run meetings, learned how to be a timekeeper, learned how to create agendas. Learned how to do all kinds of dry, boring stuff that most people are like, really? You like did that in high school? Yeah, you had to have minutes. Wow. <laughs> minutes, you right. know, like you had to learn how to do things like, oh, could I call for a straw vote right now? Because I'd like to just get a poll of the room without actually taking a vote on the topic so we can get a pulse of where people are, you know? That's like bizarre. in high school, we learned this stuff. Right. And you said they're still around? 
No, the school closed after 43 years of operation. Whoa! Just about four years ago. Why'd they close? Because that, I, you know, that's a, I call it a, a freak hippie artist dropout school in, a, in Republicanville is really mm-hmm. the short answer for why it closed. So they just don't want that kind of crowd around anymore where that school was. Well, it's too freaky. We've alluded to it a few times, but I think this would be a good segue to ask this concept of these little experimental communities always seem to have a termination date. They don't always seem to... Sure. That one has a pattern to it that you'll find is occurring all over the country, which is called founder syndrome. Part of why Upatina is closed after 43 years is because the founder, Sandy Hurst, finally got tired of giving obscene amounts of energy and labor and love to a program that she had helped create that needed somebody else to take it over if it was ever going to continue. And it's called founder syndrome. And the way I described her was purposeful to clarify what that emerges from, Mm -hmm. which is when one person is so instrumental to an organization functioning and when that person gives more labor than you could ever pay somebody to do you get into a difficult financial reality as far as how do you create a position that can be duly compensated to now cover for a job that actually was largely being done volunteer and it's happening all over the place in the country because in the late in the late 60s, early 70s, <clears throat> a bunch of nonprofits were created. And a lot of them were created by people who also ran the organization and are the director of the organization. Right. And a lot of them are getting old and want to just not have to give this much energy anymore to this kind of thing that, they, that was their baby for 30 plus years. It's interesting hearing it in that, I've never heard that phrase put together, but obviously this founder syndrome has, it's, it's presence in the CEO world. Gesundheit is going to, is going to, Steve Jobs suffer from it. People freak out. Oh, it's not the same, but it happens all, uh, I guess that does happen more often when you stop and think why. Yeah. That makes sense because they are working. Yes, they have a paycheck, they're paying themselves. But they're not doing it for that. They're putting everything into it. Exactly. But you get some replacement who's like, all right, well, it's not his baby. He's going to pay me a lot of money. You want me to work 80-hour weeks? Exactly. So that's what... So what about in regards to that founder syndrome? I guess, yeah, if you There's did financial kind of, ways If you did the, like, the farm, how, what yep. was that? Now, that's still around, as yep. you told me, which, but it did dip drastically, right? Absolutely. Could you... My understanding... What's your understanding what, uh, Short version of that story... Was it at one point they had something like twelve hundred people living on the farm? And would that be a good size little hippie village right there, or is that that's pretty good size, right? They'd pre- yeah on something like two thousand acres. So they had twelve hundred people, people, two thousand acres. They were that, that's the biggest ever. What's uh, the biggest ever? I don't ever? know about that. I the biggest ever is Aruville in India. Wow. I've sure. never heard of this. Sri Aryu Bindu. Never heard of it. You haven't heard of Sri Aryu Bindu? Uh-uh. So, she, you know, he was one of these, you know, like you probably heard of the mother. So you got these, they're various, like, Eastern ashram people who were um, influential about sort of connecting evolution with metaphysics with Eastern philosophy. Right. 
Yeah, I'm not. I'm not up to speed on my ashrams, but neither am I. But honestly, I've but heard some names feeling? recently, but I didn't. I was not aware of that one. How many people live there? I don't know, but I would say that's <laughs> probably the biggest one in the world as far as eco villages. Is Auroville? A U R O Ville. I'll have to look that up. Right. The other one would be Dominhir, which is in Italy, and is uh, also very esoteric and mystical. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyone can go from anywhere, any country. Yeah. How if Absolutely. I want to go to Italy? How would I? Is it is it kind of a uh, an illegal in regards to like? Can you using the Italy just for example? If I want to go live in this village. And community, yeah. Uh, how would you? You can't just move to Italy without a job, or like, you know what I mean. Like, you can't just move. How could there. you just move there? How does that work? Do they, well, you would they visit and be a volunteer? I wasn't. I don't know how you would move there. That's a whole other question. Okay. How would you become resident? Or, or, or <laughs> no, no, any any country. No, if <laughs> I wanted to go to this one and and go live in this environment in that's India. a different podcast. That's yeah. not this stuff. <laughs> there are ways. <laughs> Next episode: How to become a resident in Italy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get ready. <laughs> um. Uh, yeah, I really don't know. I would say. Yeah, what I could I mean, say that's useful about okay. it. Are there above board <laughs> methods, I should say, to, to run off and go to one of these places? Yeah. There are. Okay. Yeah. That, I guess that's. Yeah, the, you could do. So of course, there are illicit w- ways to do multi, you know, leaving. I knew a lot of people. I shouldn't say a lot. I definitely knew people in China whose visas expired. Like we're talking years. Yeah. Sure. And you get to a point where you can't ever leave. So, yeah, right. they're living there, but they right. shouldn't be there. Right. So yeah, that's, that's not a good gonna, place yeah. to be for sure. Well, now in that, well, until a, you have to resort to that, you can just dabble in it and check it out and see if it's worth that kind of commitment by doing something like woofing. And you can be a willing worker on organic right. farms. These communities, Domin here is yeah. listed in the Gen listing. Gen is the Global Eco Village Network. Hmm. Okay. So there's a and Ruville is in there. Domin here is in there. Tamara is in there, which is another larger one that's in Portugal. Uh, and then ones in this country are, are there, too. The farm is in there. Um, Sirius Community, which is one up in Massachusetts, which was created by people, has a thread what's to that the founders. Like? So that would be the of, closest one to us? Yeah. So what? what's it like? I, You know, I hate to... I don't like to necessarily disparage people by just generalizing about their scene but it's not an exciting place because it's basically a small site with a with an aging group that aren't willing to hand it off to a younger crowd i think recently one of the founding members died and so there may be some major changes founders they had founder they well, they had another. They had a bunch of issues going. Basically, they weren't sharing nicely, so there was right. like an in group that wasn't making it feel inviting, even though people desperately wanted to be there who were bringing a lot to the table. Right. Because it has this reputation, it is one of the only intentional communities within a fairly large area, yeah. and it was started by people who started Findhorn, right? So Findhorn is where Paul Hawken, who started Airworn Foods, and Findhorn is very well known in the eco-village community because it's also it was it was started by Peter and Eileen Caddy and they started it out on a bunch of dunes in Scotland and 
they were able to get really huge cabbages to grow by apparently talking to plant fairies. And they're also really into <coughs> Christian metaphysics, like Rosicrucianism. Right. So they sort of combine animism with Rosicrucianism. And they've got this esoteric scene going on that is called the Findhorn community. Yeah, I've never been I've there, never but it's internationally it. known as one of the nicest, Findhorn. most huh. posh eco-villages going these days. They have a nice high-end living I machine. I have to admit, I, I wasn't aware of these eco-villages. I kind of knew about the going back to the Earthships. I knew they had that mm-hmm. little community in Taos. But that wouldn't be considered an eco-village, would it? No. But it's, it's probably but it's some kinda, eco-villages that have Earthships. But right. the Taos one, as far as I know, is it's not just off, called it, an eco village. Right, but it, it is off technically off grid uh, living. Yeah, I think mostly each, the Earthships yeah, yeah, yeah. usually are. So, yeah. how many of those type uh, off grid living communities do you think there are? Like, let's say in the in the east, like what, around here, individual homes where there's kind of yeah homes that are in a community, but they're just basically their whole thing is just being an off grid and. Not necessarily. What would be the difference? None. What would be the difference, I guess? There isn't none one. that I know of. Okay. I guess I was trying to understand what is the only, difference. Only examples I can think of would typically be individuals with an individual house that have decided to be off-grid. Well, isn't but there... But there are no real communities, say, like a development or something like that, where each house is right. actually off-grid. Now, they are doing permaculture developments, though, right? And there's some a place in California that has like a... Yeah, you know, there you're talking about village homes in Davis, California. That's the one. Yeah, that's an amazing example. What's your thought? Yeah, give me what's your thoughts about that? Incredible. I don't know and why how, more how, haven't been done. So how would you describe it, makes it no sense for, for to me people who, haven't been who, done. who might not know what it is? Can, how would you describe it? Well, village homes is, oh man, it's packed on that site. I want to pull out a book to get a reference on the numbers because it's... There's so many. There's a wait. I heard there's like a three or four year wait. A wait list, and they've tripled in price in relation no, to the surrounding haven't. real estate really? values. Wow. They're three times more. Wow. Yeah. Why is no one else doing this? Well, here's one reason. Let's the quick answer to that it took them 10 years to get it approved by the planning board. Uh, Can you imagine? Imagine doing that in New York. 10 years. It'd take 20 years here. So th- this was a labor of love for um, what Judy, was the hang-up? Because Judy were... and Michael Corbett, okay, a couple, and it was a team, but everybody peeled off except for Judy and Michael. They stayed with they stuck the weather the storm. Yeah, it was literally because of, because of there was probably years. a financial burden of going ten Incredible. years. Imagine yeah. buying land and you have it developed and you can't do anything with it. Yeah. That's fun. Ten years, exactly. You think, so New York would, would be worse, I'm assuming, right? If you wanted to do something like that in Hudson Valley. I think it's about being strategic about where you do something like that. Like, mm. you know, because one of the things, Michael and Judy Corbett in the 70s, consists of 244 single and multifamily residences on 60 acres. It's high density. Pretty high density, but I think that I've seen Community a few snapshots. I've never seen any video, it's but awesome, there's yeah. some. There's like these common, it's incredible little park food park. Bill I, Mullison says he can't get out of the place once he goes there and starts shooting film footage because it's wow. just so entrancing for him and amazing. He's just like this place is incredible. I've shot so much footage go. here. So listen, here's just the basic description of it in one of the best books okay. I've found on it. 
a landscape architecture foundation book. Mm -hmm. Uh, The community is now fully built out. Houses are planned as energy-conserving buildings around common open spaces with play areas and shared gardens. A sizable part of the development is devoted to community open space, including orchards, vineyards, and play areas. Most of the landscape is designed as an edible landscape and is owned and actively managed by its residents. Seen early on by local planners and bankers as a high-risk development, Village Homes Today is one of the most desirable and economically successful developments in California. Wow. It offers many design and planning lessons useful for community development and landscape architecture. For example, Village Homes has developed and tested innovative site design features such as open channel drainage, edible planting and sustainable open space, and researchers have found them to be socially, ecologically, and economically effective. So basically, open channel drainage means that instead of putting stormwater into culvert pipes, you just have a cool little, what looks like a stream when the storm is happening and then just dries up. And that way you get infiltration, you don't have pipes that get clogged up, You just have to clean out a ditch periodically, you know, every, like, year or so. So, okay. So this is fascinating to me because this obviously is is successful. Yeah. That took, it took them 10 years. 10 years, which is part of why it hasn't happened all over. They were the pioneers, They were in Davis, California, too. They were in a tough, like, right outside of Sacramento, zoning central. So they plugged away at one of the tougher battles. You could be way more strategic with it. Well, so, so like there's one out here called Hudson Woods. Oh, there is one out here. Catskills. Okay. Not at all eco. Oh, wait, it's I not like of, this. I think I, I shouldn't looked say it there's up. one out here that's at all. Don't 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 say oh there's one. Right, right, Hudson right. Woods is not village homes. I remember looking this up and I can't. But it, what vi- what Hudson Woods is has off. become seasonal homes that are just high end because it's so remote. Mm. And there's it's is all that a community type. No. Yeah. Just mid-century modern $650,000 houses. That will always be the problem out here because New York is too freaking close. Not necessarily. I don't think that will always be a problem. Not at all. Because I think you location, location, location. You start up Andrew Faust Homes in the the Hudson Valley. That'd be cool. If I felt like running a development organization, which I don't. Yeah, that's why why I teach because I trained up Jeff, who's a licensed contractor, and he's running crews and building. I don't even want to build houses for individual clients, much less be a development. But I do want to partner with people. I have an architect who also took my class, who I'm consulting on a hundred acre property that they're purchasing, that is near Ghent, New York, where Hawthorne Valley is. Yes, where Hawthorne Valley is. And There's a whole well. Waldorf population that moves there from That's right. Brooklyn yep. just to have mm-hmm. their kids go to that sure. school. Yep. So we're strategically working on building a sustainable eco-development with permaculture, informing it in that location because there will be a good buying base for people. And this is a work in, in progress? It. Yeah. Or an idea. It's an orchard that I've already walked the 100 acres. He has a team. He's an architect. His wife is an architect. They've got funders. They've got investors. I didn't know this. Yeah. What is a recent project that I've been working on? How long of a project is this going to be? Oh, for the build-out? Yeah. Like years and years, Years. right? Yeah. Yeah. They don't even have a spec house yet. Okay. 
And so that's, f- for them, how it, much? He's big into passive house. I don't know how much of a role I'm going to play in the actual building envelope systems because right. I'm, I'm not a. F- <clears throat> yeah, the problem I have with passive house is that it doesn't at all consider off grid. Passive house is a is a grid tie model. Because it's it's an energy hog when you come down to it. They use HEPA filters. They use a lot of fans. They use a lot of juice. You can do net zero passive house, but net zero is all grid tie. Hmm. And so people don't quite know the way those systems work enough to realize that that's not a closed loop integrated house design that has resiliency in terms of giving you the comforts you need if the infrastructure has a problem. Right. If the grid collapses, if the grid has a glitch, and you have a passive house that is net zero, you have no electricity, no half filters, no heat, right. no hot water. Right. Because it's all electric, and it's none of it's coming from batteries or inverters that are on your site. What, right. What's your thoughts on windmills? They're great. I think. Some, no, I think the thing thing about with renewable energy is how to integrate them. So you're gonna, you know, some sites wind is gonna have its use. Every off grid home I know has at least three systems. They typically oh, will have really? wind, solar, and a generator. And usually the reason for the generator is because sometimes the wind and the solar aren't doing enough to charge up the battery, so you crank up the generator to bring the whole. So not many up to charge just wind and solar people. You don't see many, you know, paddle wheel, old school type uses of water turbulence. Water's, you know, in theory, like you've been to, our, you've been often, to the, the property now, there's, you know, like 80 foot waterfall that probably has some. In order to do anything inertia. with water, you have to create a reservoir and then run a pipe uh, from it and then run that pipe to a turbine. Which is achievable. Then the other challenge with hydro is mm-hmm. how far of a distance the location usually is where water is from where you actually need the electricity. Could so you- now you have to run that electric through a line to a battery bank that's where you're oh, actually so going to use it. in that case, right. So you very seldom would see this, and if you did, would it be some kind of very low-tech or more of a high-tech operation? It's that's it's more that it's really site-specific yeah. is what I mean by it. Like it's, it's less common that you're going to have an opportunity to use hydro on a site than it is going to be the case that you're going to have opportunities that's probably to use why, solar or wind. Yeah, there's probably why. So Way I, more opportunities I saw, for solar and wind than hydro. I had some... Ideas that I had had seen in Seb Holzer had some well, old Sep, school paddle wheels. Uh, yeah, and stuff. Sep site makes you get all kinds right, of crazy right, right, ideas. Right. There. I know, I know. <clears throat> I That's love why his I'd site. Him, yeah. But do you? Re- but <clears throat> to understand what he's doing on that site, the, you know, Sep has lakes, not ponds. They're not like small. his, like his, yeah. like his reservoirs are sizable. You know, and then the pipes he's got are like three inch pipes that drop like. A hundred feet yeah, of he's a, he's elevation on, yeah, over, he's like got some gnarly crazy uh, drop over run. Yeah. That then he has this Peyton wheel and some crazy turbine that he never explains to you properly. That you just see him like flip it on and something. And he's like, and this runs everything <laughs> in the whole Kramaderhof. And you're like, awesome, Sep. How does it do that? 
I'd love to hear more about where you got that thing. Who does, He doesn't tell any of that stuff. Because what he's doing is two things. I think it has something to do with not wanting to fully unpack all the details. So you have, have to, to go, go there, which, have to I, go which there, I almost did. Which I he almost, charges a lot of money and he does for, charge. and he should. Yeah. He should. It was a fair amount of money. Because he's sitting on some serious he's knowledge. Got nice, he's got a nice property. He's got an incredible property. That's sick, yeah. He's in the Austrian Alps, and he's created these lakes that are basically stepped into the mountainside in a chain. I mean, Killer. it's some crazy number, it's, like 10 lakes at least that this guy has built. And, and growing. Excavators and growing dozers. And, and then they're all interconnected through this crazy plumbing system that yes. he's got. And then in the middle of that plumbing system, he's got the power plant for the whole site. It's genius. But there's not many sites that are that, that, that you geographically can pull that. Well, you, yeah. powerful as that site is yeah but there are yeah but there are different scaled versions of being able to tap into what he's doing there it does just involve a reservoir a pipe and drop over run then if you can do all that and not have where that thing is that the turbine is spinning in be too far from where you want to send the electricity to you're golden right totally they're talking about putting them in line in portland oregon i've read articles about these inline turbines that municipalities could start thinking about putting in. I haven't heard about that. Literally a turbine that's basically in the water line. So every time somebody's using water, it's generating electricity. Whoa. It makes sense, right? It's like if turbines create electricity from spinning, why don't we just put turbines in water lines? Makes sense. Because you're always I've never heard of running water. Sure. We're learning this, you know, with electric cars. They've got this whole technology about when you apply the brakes, it's powering the batteries. I didn't know that. Yeah. That makes leaf. So the you, Nissan Leaf is set up that way. Okay. So that you're you're actually so charging that, pe- that pedal, like pedal power. You're doing yeah, like the as, of because of the right. friction and the action. Somehow they were right. able to engineer it so that it's charging the batteries. Well, I've heard, which I've makes heard, total um, sense. I've heard Oregon is kind of a good place to go if you want to do this kind of stuff, right? If you want to do some off grid and kind of get out of the sure the, uh, standard day to days. Any from, place in the country where you go far enough away from a larger Municipality, area. right? I, but I think like t- building time. codes or some areas that are better than others, right? If you want to start, you know, doing some cool, funky experimental yeah. houses, right? Yeah. I, I don't know specifically about Oregon, but well, part of how I picked West Virginia was as soon as you're outside of a town or municipality, there's no code, no zoning. There's no permits. You can basically do Build whatever you want. Whatever that's you want. still the ca- can't be still the case. Yeah, it is. Really? Totally. I didn't think that existed. Oh, yeah. Because when I saw that... You know, they might decide that they care a little bit about whether you right. have a septic or something, but a lot of it is about whether they can even get to your site. Because the reality is the people who actually work in the office who regulate that kind of stuff, they don't feel like going to some crazy remote site in the mountains of West Virginia. They don't really care. Right. So even if they did have a rule about it, they don't enforce it. Yeah, I, yeah, I want to say from the... Um, You'd have to have some crazy scene going on that got big, that neighbors got upset about. Then they might. Okay. Then they might. Why? Well, I, you know, I if think like suddenly you had like hundreds of people living on your property and you were having crazy, huge fire festivals with bands. and Actually, they'd probably all just be there. 
that we would call it's yeah. a good enough. <laughs> It'd be like, yeah, oh, this is the yeah. scene. Well, there was a uh, on the when I was looking. Guy That's I, how they do Burning Man, right? What's Burning that? Man. Oh you yeah, know, right. Man out in yeah, yeah. That's on uh, Bureau of Land Management. Land right. Land. So they get permits, I'm sure, to do it of some sort. Sounds like it's raining out there. It is. Yeah. Um. How long have we been going? Actually, I'll pause it. Yeah.